Amen. Good morning. morning. Hey, welcome to uh, week three in our series, Understanding uh, the Bible. Uh, I got to tell you, it's been a good time so far. Amen? Amen. Now, before we jump into this morning's conversation, I need to take time out for a very brief but very important commercial. All right. Uh, On on July the 1st, um, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. Um, Haven't done one for a while. And if you... uh, and if you love Jesus, and you've never been baptized, you really need some praying, and, and you need to do some studying of the Word of God, which is the authority for your life. And, and uh, if you go to our website, you'll see that if you click on you know, thegroveseville.org, who we are, you can click on baptism, and you click on that, and you'll see uh, the next slide, where we actually have a couple studies. We have our baptism statement because uh, baptism is not a tradition of the church, it's a command and promise of God, and, and you also see a, a special study about baptism, so you can get in the Word and see what the Word says. Don't take my word for it, don't take anybody's word for it, just take God's, God's word for it. And, and if you read this and you're like, yo, I need to do this, you don't, don't wait till July 1st. Call me up, I'll be over here and we'll take care of it any time of day or night, all right? Okay. Also, notice on your connection card, you can... Uh, um, like it, you know, I, I don't know if the culture we live in is like if someone's life is they're really struggling is like, hey, I want to come up here and walk in front of everybody and have them wonder what's going on, or you know, if you would ever like to talk to someone about, hey, how do I surrender to Christ? Hey, my, my life is not going so well. Use that connection card if you don't feel comfortable coming up here. There's also you can check on there. It's not on the screen, but it's on the card where if you want an elder to pray for you or to contact you, right? You know, um, you know, we're not mind readers as leaders, right? And, and, and we miss things because our life is just as hectic and busy as you are. You know, but I guarantee you, well, almost guarantee you because maybe we have messed up a time or two. You know, but if you check that box, hey, we need an elder to contact us. We're going to do our best to make sure that happens, all right? Now back to our regularly scheduled Sunday morning sermon at the Grove, Understanding the Bible. Now, in week one of the series, we talked about how if a non-contingent, uncaused by anything else, self-sufficient, self-reliant, all-powerful, intelligent, always existent, unique, good, and moral God who loves us were to write a book, that it would be the most amazing book in all of human history. In other words, if, if God spoke, we would have no doubt that those words were from him. And I stand before you today without, without any doubt in my mind whatsoever And declare to you that the Bible is that book, that the Bible is from God, and therefore you can and should trust what the Bible says. Understand the Bible, like we talked about, the Bible is unique, right? The Bible is accurate. The Bible is supernatural. No stuff that only God can know. And the Bible is transformational, right? It changes lives moment by moment, life by life. And last week we talked about how how the Bible can be intimidating, but there really is one overriding theme and purpose and storyline, right? And and that storyline is simply this, right? The coming of Christ. And the message of the Old Testament, you know, all the law, all the books of history, all all the prophets, all the poetry has one message, you know, Jesus is coming. And the gospels, the message is Jesus is here. And then the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus is, Jesus is coming again. If you think about it, that makes sense, right? That the storyline of the Bible would be the coming of Christ. After all, John wrote in John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word being about Jesus is not like, whoa, that's crazy. I never thought that would be about Jesus. No, it kind of makes sense. And and if you missed either of those messages, I encourage you to go online, right, listen to them again, because what we're talking about is, is really important. Website, podcast, Facebook, um, we have the video live. This morning, we're going to begin a two-week conversation. It was going to be one week, but just can't get it done. Um, how we got the Bible. And this week, we're going to talk about the process of canonization. And hopefully, no matter what you know about that right now, when you leave here, you know a little bit more, and you understand a little bit better, and you see the importance of it. Now, next week, we're going to jump out of this series, because it's Father's Day, and I'm going to do a conversation that I'm calling, I am who you say I am. And I understand, dads, there's a lot of opinions out there, right? Who and what dads should be, 
And I think it may be a good idea to check with the creator of fatherhood to see who God says we are as dads. And, and I have some idea about what he's going to say, but I'm really looking forward to studying this week because I know God always has a whole lot more to say because sometimes he says things and I'm, I'm a little hard of hearing. And then on June 24th, we're going to jump back into the series, How We Got Our Bible, and we're going to talk about the transmission of the text. And in that conversation, I'm going to attempt to answer the question of what went on, what things happened from the time that God breathed and Peter and Paul and Matthew and Luke grabbed their pen and wrote it down to 2,000 years later when you and I are holding a Bible on, in our hands or a Bible app on our phone. Like what happened in the transmission of the text that we can be confident that the Bible we have is the Bible God wants for us. Uh, let's pray. Uh, God, we love you. And Lord, thank you for this opportunity to talk about your word. Um, Lord, help me uh, to preach it clearly. Help us to leave this place more excited than ever that what we have are words breathed by you to us, your children, whom you love. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter writes, above all, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Second Timothy, Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God-breathed is the Greek word, Theanustas. Theanustas. Say it with me. Theanustas. 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 Now, before we jump into talking about canonization, I, I want to remind you of my two primary goals for the series. I'll start with goal number two. Is the motivating courage, challenge and inspire people to read the Bible like never before. That's a good goal because you're convinced it really is from God and because I'm going to give you some tools that are going to help you better understand and apply it to your life, all right? I think that's a good goal. And i got to be honest, this series has been, on understanding the Bible, has been very challenging and convicting to me. I'm going to share one of the ways that it's convicted me. Have you ever heard of this saying, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed them for a lifetime. Anybody ever heard that? You know, in, in some ways, I think what I've done for the most part on Sunday mornings is that I've given you all some pretty awesome, filling, and tasty fish from God's Word. I mean, I have plated and served some seriously delicious fish, some great fish. In fact, things that we all need to know and eat. I mean, and many of us have left here feeling very satisfied, like, yo, that was, that was a good meal. I'm going to come back next week and, and have some more. Listen, I'm not saying that feeding you fish from God's Word is not a good thing, because it is a good thing. And matter of fact, it's what God has called me to do. However, I don't think I've done as good a job as God wants me to do at teaching you how to fish. At teaching you how to open your Bible, right? And say, like... Are you kidding me? That's some awesome fish. Give me a lemon wedge and a spoon and a fork and let me start eating it. But I want you to know that, that is now in the process of change. I, I promise to do better at helping you become fishers of the Word of God. Um, the, the first goal of this series was this, and it really ties to our message today, is to uh, take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates, contrary to the onslaught of modern culture, that the Bible is not just another book or mere ink on paper, but that it really is from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And today's conversation, it's about canonization. It's about how we got our Bible. Now, now when I open my Bible, what I see is that I have, I have 39 books in the Old Testament, and, and I have 27 books in the New Testament for a total of 66 books. Question, how do we know if the books in there are the right ones. 
I mean, are, are there some books that shouldn't be in there? And are there other books that for nefarious, not good with evil intent reasons, have been lost, forgotten, or banned from the Bible? Now, here's how I want to talk about this conversation about canonization. And by the way, this is my very first sermon ever entirely dedicated to the process of canonization, you know, as shame on me. Has anybody ever heard, not a Sunday school, not a teaching, sat in on a Sunday morning service and heard a sermon that was totally dedicated to canonization? Okay, well, we're doing good, preachers like me. <laughs> okay, here's how I want to attack this conversation. By unpacking several statements, why, why this conversation is so important, what, what canon and canonization is, why you can be confident in the Old Testament canon, why you can be confident in the, in the New Testament canon. Are you ready? I, I mean, has the caffeine started to take effect, right? Because I'm telling you, you're going to need it. You're going to need it because, believe when I tell you, this train it's going to hit the tracks, and it's going to be moving fast. We are going to go down deep, and we are going to come up wet, all right? And, 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 and uh, the good news is, thanks to modern technology, right, it's on our website. We have a podcast. We have Facebook Live, and you can listen to it again and to absorb it. Let's do this. Statement number one, why this conversation is an important one. Number one, to, to give us confidence in the book that we have based our life and placed our hope in. I mean, seriously, if, if you and I are, are going to base our life and, and we're going we're gonna to place our hope in the words that are in this book, then we should want to be confident that what we have are the very words of God, right? And, and that there's nothing in this book that, that God does not want to be in there, that there's nothing in this book that God did not breathe. Theonostos, right? Nothing in there that he didn't breathe. This is a rhetorical question, but you know, how confident are you that this book contains the words God spoke? And if you are confident, what, what fuels your confidence? And next, this conversation is important because the Bible day is being attacked on so many different fronts. And I, I, I don't have time to go into detail but here are some of the main attackers against the canon of the Bible in recent years. The Da Vinci Code, all right? I, I mean, seriously, in 2006, this fictional book created a tsunami of panic in the church. That panic was real. It was kind of crazy. Like, how could a fictional book create that kind of panic? Because God's people simply weren't prepared the answer, the lies in that book. Another is the Jesus Seminar, which is trying to reinvent Jesus to make him more palatable. You know, have you ever heard of a place called Build-A-Bear? Well, this is basically build your Jesus, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, hey, I like this part of Jesus. I'll build my own Jesus. It's pretty cool. He's cute. Okay. A third is unbelieving critical scholarship, whose favorite resting and launching pad is colleges and universities. And believe me when I tell you, parents, they are just waiting for your kids and mine to get there, right? They're just waiting, can't wait. Another is Islam, right? You know, as they want to spread their faith, they are really attacking the Bible. And finally, there's just secularism, right? I mean, how silly and primitive to think there's a God out there that would, would say that this is right and this is wrong. When all intelligent people know that truth is diverse and not absolute, Except the truth that Christianity is absolutely false. <laughs> and, and why are these people so adamantly attacking the Bible? Because they know, and so does their enemy, that Scripture is the very foundation, core, and heart of the Christian faith. And they know that if you can damage and, and crack that foundation, saying the Bible we have is not reliable and it's not from God, then, then all that's left is just another human religion. You see, once the Bible goes, once its authority is no longer valid, what remains no longer resembles what God said he wants his church to be or his people to be. Uh, check out this quote. 
um, from a guy named uh, James White. I listened to uh, one of his videos this week. And by the way, uh, on this table over here, I, I have a, these are some of the books that I'm using for this study. You can't take them. You can look at them, right? You know? And also, here, here's this card that has some resources for further information, you know, some books and some videos. Got to be careful what you watch. I watch, you know, these, and these are pretty solid, some pretty solid teachers. And, and, and this right here is a book that, that I think almost every Christian should have. Um, it's called Know Why You Believe by Paul E. Little, Basic Things About Your Faith and Defending Your Faith. Um, I became a Christian at the age of 20, and um, it was uh, less than a month I became a Christian. I left where everybody was that I knew that was a Christian to go to uh, prototype and then to my sub nuclear submarine and with a lot of intellectual type people. And uh, this book um, given to me helped my faith a lot. This, it's been updated. And so every week I, I, I'm going to offer one of these books. Anybody want this book right here? All right, your, your hand was first up. I'm going to toss it. It's, she caught it, okay? Amen. So next week I'll pass out another one. I just think it's a great book uh, that really everyone should have. And here's what James White says. Uh, Serious believers who desire to engage the culture directly and powerfully must not only master the content of the Bible, but must do what some preceding generations did not need to do. That is, we must know far more about transmission preservation, canonization, and transmission of the Bible than ever before. He goes on, and, and due to modern technology and the um, modern technology and the internet, and that word text shouldn't be there, I'm using, with my hand, I'm using voice dictation for the first time. Boy, that gets tough. Then if you get mad at it and start talking, it starts typing that out, so that shouldn't be there, you know. Uh, uh, and due to modern technology and internet, attacks upon the faith can spread very quickly and with relative ease today. Therefore, we need to be familiar with the arguments that are being thrown out there in an effort to undermine and attack not only the Bible, uh, but our faith. And yes, though this is secondary to, uh, to us knowing and understanding the Bible itself, nevertheless, it is vital for us to know this stuff. All right? I agree with him. A third reason why this conversation is so important for us to have is that there are often serious consequences if we're unable to answer the skeptics. Uh, on June 6th, I, I made the following post on, on my Facebook page as I was in this study mode. I understand when skeptics know more than believers do about topics like canonization and transmission of the text, it is difficult for us to argue with them. And the best case scenario is that the skeptic wins the argument. <laughs> The worst case is that we doubt and then eventually lose our faith and the skeptic never finds his faith to begin with. And I've seen that happen far too often. Sometimes in drastic ways or sometimes subtle ways. Right? Where it just gets you to doubt this book. And, you know, it's not really from God, so you know, I'll listen to some of it, but I don't really have to listen to all of it. You know, it has a subtle effect, right? Because times have changed, and you know, I need to kind of do the things that I want to do, and it just has this effect. Okay, so why is it important conversation to have, right, to give us confidence? I mean, do you want confidence that the books you have are really from God? Um, because the Bible, it's being attacked, and it is. And, and there are consequences if we're unable to answer to skeptics. I, I want to read a quote from Michael Kruger. Um, He's on one of those cards in the video. I have some of his books up there, a really smart dude. Um, and, and then we'll go into the second statement. He says this, uh, dealing with canon and scriptural issues is a shepherding issue. He says, you're going to have people in your congregation, in fact, you have them right now, even if you don't realize it, who are confused and worried and have anxiousness over whether or not these books they think are God's word really are God's word. Statement number two. Uh, what canon and canonization is. Question, what is canon? And it's not this, by the way. Okay. Uh, that has two ends, okay? Uh, the word canon is derived from the Greek word kano, which means a rule or a measuring stick, right? If I had a ruler up here, that, that, would, be a, that would be a canon, right? I would use that and measure as a standard measure against other things, in an early Christian usage, the word canon came to mean the books that God inspired, and therefore they are the rule by which we measure life and faith and truth and everything else. 
And, and today, many people think the canon is, is you know, it, it's uh, the list of, of books in the Bible. Uh, James White says in his book, Scripture Alone, I got a copy up there. He says, if the canon is nothing more than a table of contents, then it's purely a human thing. Known by man and hence subject to all the endless debates and arguments history presents as having already taken place in almost every generation. But what if canon is more than that? And brothers and sisters, more than that, canon is. And I will channel my inner Yoda there, right? More than that, canon is. So the question is, when did the canon start to exist? Like, like when did it first begin existing? And understand that historical critical scholars, those who do not believe in God, which I contend is a very serious bias when you're trying to determine which books were spoken by God, right? I don't know. I think they have a bias. They may think we have a bias. I say they have one too, right? All right? And and they're constantly striving to undermine the Bible, and they use this. What they'll say is, well, you know, the canon didn't really start till late in the in the fourth century. In other words, they promote the theory that, that for the first 300 years, there really was no Bible. Therefore, Christians really had, had no idea or commonly held beliefs of what was and what was not Scripture. You see, modern-day critics like to say that early Christianity was wildly diverse in both thought and theology. And they teach that they're there was really no distinct view of Christianity during the first centuries of the church. Instead, they contend that there were countless views about Jesus and God and salvation. In other words, there was no Christianity. There were Christianities, positive, I mean, excuse me, plural. And, And so you have these different views of Christianity fighting each other for preeminence and therefore today, we are only reading the books from the guys who won the battle. And if somebody else won the battle, guess what? We'd be reading their books, they said, the scholars would say, the critical ones, and we would not even know the difference. I'm not making this up. And listen, there's, there's no doubt that the culture we find ourselves living in, one that loves diversity and is repulsed by absolute truths, I mean, is there any wonder they embrace this kind of thinking, right? They love it. You know, like, hey, there's no real truth. There's, there's no real Jesus. There, there's no real scripture. I, I can just pick out whatever Jesus and whatever Bible fits my lifestyle, whatever teaching aligns with how I want to live, whatever fits my desires and, and my wants, what, what I think is right and wrong, because it's just the verse. But listen, listen, this... This all comes down to the question of what the canon really is in the first place. You see, if we assume that the canon is nothing more than just a list, then the canon started when someone wrote that list down. But what if the canon actually is God breathe? Theanustas. Understand, brothers and sisters, if that is true that the canon is Theanostas, God breathed, then it began to exist the very moment that God breathed it and someone wrote it down. Like the canon began when when Moses grabbed his pen in Genesis 1 and said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And boom, canon came into existence. First one book, then two books, then three books as the books were written. Get it? Good. Let me give you an example of what I'm trying to say. Now, I, I, I write, I type, I attempt to dictate. <laughs> now, you know, a lot of Microsoft Word documents. A long time ago, it was WordPerfect, <laughs> okay? Way back in the day, all right? Um, so you could say that, you know, I have a canon, right? There is a canon of docu- Word documents that Steve Malone wrote versus all the Word documents that Steve Malone didn't write. And listen, I know what those documents are, even if nobody else knows what they are, right? Why? Because I created them. I wrote them. And and when did my my canon of Word documents begin to exist? When I created my what? My first Word document. 
And as I write more and more documents, my canon gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So when did the canon of the Bible start to exist? When God wrote his very first book. Understand, if God inspired any books out there, then there is a canon out there whether we have a list or not. Get it? Good. You see, the canon, first and foremost, is a theological issue, not an historical issue. And listen, whenever we try to defend the reliability of the Bible only from or starting from an historical position, we're going about it all wrong. Listen, here's the deal. And, and, and what I'm about to say, I, I think is important for us. Listen. If God intends to reveal himself to people for a purpose, and, and if God is alive and active in this world, and, and if it is his purpose and desire that Scripture function as a rule of faith, and if it is his purpose to build the church up upon his revealed word, then it only makes sense that God would exert and utilize just as much divine power to make sure that the church has the scripture and knows what is and what is not scripture as he exerted when he inspired scripture in the first place. And in fact, it's crazy to think he would do otherwise. Like God says, you know what? My people need to hear from me. I'm going to breathe out some words. Men are going to write it down, and I sure hope people find it. <laughs> Good luck. Hope you find it. Hope you can figure out what it is. What would he do that? It doesn't even make sense theologically. Listen, we need to see canon from both theological and a historical perspective. But the starting point needs to be theological. The starting point needs to be that God spoke, that God inspired men to write what he had breathed out, and that he wants us to know and have that revelation. Bottom line, can in the word of God, it's not a statement of the church. I mean, we don't get to tell God what to write. We don't get to tell God, 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 you wrote that and you didn't write that. I mean, you can't come to me and say, Steve, you wrote that. I go, there's no way I wrote that. You see how there's no grammar errors in there, right? There's no way that's me. I, I know what I wrote. We don't get to do that. Understand, man and the church do not create canon, but only seek to recognize it. Norman Geisler, one of his books up there called From God to Us, great scholar of many books, he says this, a, a book is not the word of God because it's accepted by the people of God. Rather, it's accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authenticity, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives it. With that being said, I, I, I think it's best to view canon in, in two ways. First, there is what I call canon-inspired, which came into existence and was created the very moment God breathed and men wrote, right? Canon-inspired. And, and, and then there is what I call canon-recognized, yeah which is the canon recognized by God's people, led by the Spirit over time. And listen, disputes about canon recognize do not in any way destroy the existence of canon inspired, right? Any more than disputes over doctrinal issues means that there's no truth about that doctrinal issue, right? There is a truth about it. Are you tracking with me? Okay, let's just breathe a little bit. I need to breathe a little bit. Like, whoo! My head's about to just explode with all the stuff I've been cramming in it. And I'm just coming here and puking it out on you guys. Or, oh, that was, a, that was a pretty poor. Bring about all kinds of memories you don't need right now. Okay, we've unpacked two statements. And now let's do three. Why we can be confident in the Old Testament canon. Number one, because of fulfilled prophecy. And we talked about that in week one, right? You know, how God knows stuff that only God can know, like God, like God can tell the, the future. Uh, we gave a lot of examples. We talked about Ezekiel's, you know, prophecy about the destruction of Tyre. I mean, very specific and very detailed, and it covered centuries, right? 
I mean, Ezekiel wrote about 500 BC. That wasn't fully fulfilled until like almost like 1900 years later. And we talk about prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. There's about 100 of them. We said that any eight of them, remember the odds, right? It's the odds of covering the state of Texas two, two feet deep with civil dollars, marking a coin, blindfolding someone, and they picked out the marked coin, right? Okay, that, that's the statistical odds, right? Fulfill prophecy. And there's a whole bunch more. Like, like, like Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Cyrus was even thought of by his mom, his grandma, his great-grandma, his great-great-grandma. He, he, Isaiah calls this guy by name, right? It'd be like someone you know, you know, 250 years ago saying you know, that Donald Trump would be the president of America right now. Like, how do you even know there's, there's going to be an America, right? How, how do you even know that Donald Trump's going to be that president? He does it, does it by name. And, and Daniel prophesied about, about the coming of, of, of governments, right? He had this vision in Daniel 2 of this, of, of this statue, it had all the various empires, right? I took a picture of one of the books I have of that statue. You had the Babylon came, and then the Persians, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then, then some big rock came down, the king of God, right? And now the king of God is reigning. You know, and, and interestingly, you know, like when Alexander the Great, when, when, when he was heading um, eastward, like, like he... He never took a, a right turn to go down to destroy Jerusalem. And many believe it's because he's like, well, like they like knew ahead of time that I was coming. You know, that they prophesied that, I would, that Greece would exist. And maybe I shouldn't tick off that, the God who predicted that. Okay? So fulfilled prophecy should give us confidence, right? Hey, how does this book know that? Because God wrote it. Uh, another reason we can be confident Old Testament canon is because they received it as scripture when they wrote it. I understand, it was not a, a as the modern-day critics contend, you know, a, a group of bearded guys wearing funny robes, right, you know, sitting in a room and saying, hey, you know what, what those guys wrote, yeah, that was Scripture. That's not what happened. There never was, despite the lies, ever such a meeting. Instead, what we see is that when the prophets of God wrote, they knew that they were writing Scripture. They knew that what they were writing was theonostos, that that it was from God, and the people received it as from God. Uh, Moses knew that in Deuteronomy 31. And Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from the beginning to the end. He gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There will remain as a witness against you. Have the scripture references in there. Joshua, when he wrote, guess what he knew? He knew he was writing scripture. When Samuel wrote, guess what he knew? I got the reference in there. He was writing scripture. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel writes scripture. He says, hey, you know that stuff that Jeremiah wrote? That was legit. That, that was scripture. That, 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 was from, that was from God. In King Josiah's day, the law of Moses was preserved in the temple. Ezra possessed copies of, of both the law and the prophets. And listen, when it came to accepting scripture, right, as scripture, God gave them two tests. Uh, first, a prophetic test, Deuteronomy 18. But you may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophecy speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. The prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. All right? So you say, hey, they said something in the prophecy. They had short-term fulfillment. For them, right? Hey, it's not going to rain for three, year, three years. Wow, okay, he must be from God. And then the long term, like, whoa, how did Micah know that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem 500 years before Jesus was ever born? A prophetic test. And they had something called the consistency test. And that's Deuteronomy 13. And basically, that test was, hey, if someone comes along long later, a prophet, and what he says doesn't agree with what the, a prophet said earlier, it's the wrong. It's not consistent. Uh, don't trust it, okay? Don't trust it. You, you can't change or alter God's truth. And listen, according to Judaism, the Old Testament canon was completed about the year 400 B.C. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus said, from Artaxerxes, which is fourth century, until our time, everything has been recorded. 
And one more thing about having confidence in the Old Testament canon. Both Jesus and the apostles affirm it. Okay, they affirm it. They Jesus quoted from the Old Testament all the time. Uh, so did the apostles. And, and, and note, whatever they quoted and said, God says it, it was always from our scriptures. It wasn't some mystery book out there that got lost or forgotten. Everything they quoted, it is written, God says, is found in our Old Testament. And they quoted it over 300 times. So Jesus and the apostles affirmed the Old Testament. And, and, and something else you can put in, I can trust my Old Testament canon, is, is this, that you know, Jesus and the Pharisees never agreed about anything, right? They were fighting all the time. They couldn't even agree on the definition of who is my neighbor. But you know what they never disagreed on? What is Scripture? Right? When they debated Scripture, Pharisees never said, well, Jesus, that's not in my Bible. No, they, they never debated Scripture, right? They, they all agreed with what Scripture had said. Uh, bottom line, the Old Testament canon started to exist when it began to be written. Man's discovery of canon happened over time. Uh, the Old Testament was believed by the Jews to be from God. Old Testament is approved and affirmed by Jesus, and it's also proved by fulfilled prophecy, right? Okay, so we can trust it, right? Fulfilled prophecy, and, and, and they knew they were writing Scripture, and Jesus affirmed that Scripture, and the Jews uh, in 400 B.C. accepted it as Scripture. Why can't we be confident in the New Testament canon? And as I said earlier, the popular idea is this, that sometime in the fourth century, a bunch of beard guys in robes got together and decided on what books were going to be in the Bible, right? And one of the common theories is that when Constantine became emperor, you know, in, in order to cement his power, right, you know, he, 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 he uh, at the Council of Nicaea, right, he decided what books would be in the Bible. That never happened, right? There was never a vote, right? Okay, nine to seven, Ephesians, you're in, right? Good job. It was close, but, but, but you made it. There, there, there never was. There never was a vote in the fourth century to determine what our Bible is going to be. And you see, our confidence in the New, New Testament canon begins not in the fourth century, but in the first century. It begins with the words that Jesus spoke. And the words that his apostles spoke who were sent from him and for him with the gospel message. And, and, and you see, well, one of the common ideas of, of the modern day critics is that, you know, besides there being no common view of Christianity, was that, the, was that the apostles and these guys who wrote did not know they were writing scripture when they wrote it. And they did not know that they had authority when they wrote it, right? They did not know it was from God. But that's simply not true. That's a lie, right? It, it's a lie. Kind of like the lie they say also that Jesus thought he was just a dude, right? Like, I'm just a dude, I'm a carpenter. And it wasn't until, again, until the fourth century that Constantine said, hey, let's make Jesus God, and that'll cement my power and my teaching, right? You know, that, that's common. I watched a, a, a video clip on YouTube from the Da Vinci Code where that's exactly what he said. Hey, he didn't know he was God. That's a later idea put on people that put on him. That's just, that's just a lie. It's, it's not true, right? It, it's simply not the case. So why can you trust the New Testament? Number one, because the first century writers knew they were writing Scripture, the Anastas. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. I got a lot of Scripture. Man, I don't have time to read them all. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom all things and through whom he also made the universe. God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament, and now he's speaking through Jesus. In John 20, 21, and by the way, Jesus speaking, Jesus speaking for God was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I commanded him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words, so the prophet speaks in my name. And so Jesus spoke for God, and he, he sent his disciples to go out and speak for him. Peter said this 
I want you to recall 2 Peter 3, 2, the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Call me silly, but it seems like he thinks he's writing Scripture. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.19, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. First Thessalonians 2, Paul says this, you never stop, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas, you accepted what we said is the very word of God, which of course it is, and this word continues to work in you who believe. Peter says in Peter 3.16, he's talking about Paul. He says, he writes his son way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do what? The other scriptures. He's, what's he saying? He said, hey, you know what, Paul? Yeah, I know he writes some hard stuff, but guess what? It, it, is, it is scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18, for Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. And right there, Paul is quoting Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when Jesus said, the worker deserves his wages. He's quoting it word for word. You know, and to this idea that, that you know, all this diversity and no real solid idea what Christianity was, Jude says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. He says, hey, there is the faith. There is the core teachings of Christianity, and it it existed in the first century. Contrary to what modern critics are saying, all these different ideas, just choose what you want to choose. And, and next, I'm going to hit this right here because we've got to get to it. Stay with me. This is worth it. This is worth it. You can trust it because the early, the apostolic and early church fathers, they saw it as Scripture, right? Again, modern critics saying, well, you know, a bunch of bearded guys in robes in the fourth century determined what it was Scripture. No one had any idea it was Scripture. No one accepted the Scripture, right? That's what they're trying to say, right? But that's not what we see. In 95 AD, Clement of Rome, said this, the apostles received the gospels for us and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent from God. Christ, therefore, is from God and the apostles from Christ. And and in that letter, he quotes Matthew, Luke, 1 Corinthians and Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, and refers to them as Scripture. And 110 AD, Ignatius he was on his way to be martyred. <laughs> he decided, I need to write some stuff down. In these letters, he calls the gospel scripture, and he speaks much on Paul's letters. In A.D. 110, we have Polycarp. He was a, a disciple of, of the apostle John. He, he quotes from Ephesians, and he calls it scripture. And listen, he's He's not trying to make a case. He's not trying to prove it. He just assumes everybody knows it's Scripture. And he quotes from Matthew and Luke and Acts and 1 John and Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy. He mentions Paul several times, mentions that Paul was an apostle and that Paul had authority in the church and that Paul, what Paul wrote was Scripture. In 125 AD, we have a guy named Papias. He he was a friend of Polycarp. He once heard John preach. He knew that the daughters of Philip the Evangelist? I mean, this is the guy who received the direction from the apostles. He talks about the New Testament writings. Speaks most about the Gospels, and he says, hey, he says that John told him that Peter gave Mark, recited the Gospel to Mark, and that Mark recorded it very accurately. Okay, the, that's where it comes from, that John Mark was from Peter. Justin Martyr, 150 AD, quotes from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and sees them as Scripture. Quotes from most of Paul's works in 1 Peter and Revelation. Right? Well before the 4th century, y'all. Tatian. He, he, he was taught and mentored by Justin Martyr, and he, he, he wanted to put together a harmony of the Gospels. And it's called the, the Deuterocene. Through the four. Through the four, and he put together a harmony of the Gospels. 
In 170 AD, you have what is called the Martorian Fragment. It's the first canonical list, right? It's kind of mutilated in the beginning, you know, um, but when you get to, you know, it mentions Mark and Matthew indirect, Matthew and Mark indirectly because it talks about Luke and says Luke was the third gospel. It mentions John. It, this fragment lists Acts, the epistles of Paul, Jude, 1 John, Revelation, and Peter. And interestingly, in this document, right, it says, we're not going to include the shepherd of Hermes in this because it was written in our time. Now, in other words, it wasn't written by a apostle. Yeah, yeah, it makes writing, but we're not going to include this list because it's not of the same quality because it was written now. It wasn't written in the beginning. Theophilus of Antioch, 177 A.D., and now in his writing, he's making the argument that the Christian writings have the same authority as the Old Testament. And he says this, concerning the righteousness which the law enjoined, confirmatory utterances are found both with the prophets, Old Testament, and in the Gospels because they all spoke inspired by one Spirit of God. Arianus and 180 A.D., he was the first guy to say, hey, there's just four Gospels, because by now other Gospels were being written. And he said, hey, there's just four. And to talk about the Gospels, he says this, uh, we have learned from none other that, we have learned from none others, the Gospel writers, the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the Gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. There's so much. Just one more. Clement of Alexandria, 198 AD. Now, he was an intellectual giant and well-read in both biblical and extra-biblical literature. He, he mentions and quotes from, well, pretty much, word for word, um, writes them out, the four Gospels, the 13 letters of Paul, Acts, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 John, Jude, in Revelation, and he sees them as Scripture. Michael Kruger, in his book, The Question of Canon, I got a digital copy of that one, and again, he says, in talking about Clement, again, there are neither any indication that Clement viewed the sacred status of these books as an innovation, nor does he appear to have received his information from Irenaeus. On the contrary, like Irenaeus, he viewed these books as having ancient pedigrees within the Christian church. These were the ones that were handed down to the church from the apostles themselves. And then around 320, I'm really just about done, we start to see some lists for the first time besides that fragment in 170. Eusebius in, in 320 starts it, and, and, and and the criteria they used, it's going to pop up on the screen, was, was, was simply this. That was the book written by apostle or associated apostle? You know, what was it? Was the book widely accepted by the church? And was this teaching, did, did it line up with, with doctrine? Did it score out with it, right? You may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas. There's some crazy stuff in some of that, that those laws forbidding banned Gospels, right? Like Jesus getting mad and like killing a kid, right? That's kind of, you know... And the Gospel of Thomas, when Jesus rises from the dead, right, you know, he's kind of, it almost implies that he's a couple hundred feet tall, and a talking cross comes out with him, right? I mean, that's just kind of goofy, right? You know, I mean, when you lay these things, people try to say a scripture next to scripture, I mean, it just doesn't compare. You know why? Because it's not Theonostos. It's not God-breathed. So 320 A.D., Eusebius, he lists 22 books that we have in our Bible now. He doesn't include James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. Just because there were some questions, right? Some, some books that were, were questioned a little bit, right? You know, in the beginning. Not everybody questioned, but some did. In 330 AD, Cecil Jerusalem listed 26 books, all but Revelation. And he kind of, we kind of think he kept Revelation out because there were some cults in that day. You know, cults love revelation and they love to twist it and, and, and they were afraid to you know, have people reading that and twist it and, and get off track. And then in uh, 367 AD, Athanasius lists our 27 books that we have right now in our New Testament. Okay? 
In 390 AD, Gregory of, I'm not even going to try to say that name. How do you say that? I heard a lot of, we're speaking in tongues in church today. Awesome. You know, he, he lists our 27 books. 394 AD, Jerome lists our 27 books. 395 AD, Augustine lists our 27 books. 397 AD, Council, Council of Carthage lists our 27 books. Okay. Breathe. It's online. Theonostas. God wrote a book. He breathed it out. And God wants you to know what's in that book. Theologically speaking, God is going to make sure and protect, to make sure we have what he wants us to have. And historically, right, we see, not in the fourth century, we see from the first century, right, a very clear view of what Christianity was, who Jesus was. And then we see into the second century, right? You know, we see man, we see widely accepted. The writings of the apostles were widely accepted by the church. Quoted more than any other writings that were out there. Despite what's being said out there, right? Despite those saying, well, you know, it, it was a bunch of bearded guys in robes who kind of voted on it. And this guy didn't. And this, that's not what we find. That's not what we find. Brothers and sisters, you can have confidence in this book. But with confidence comes responsibility. I mean, like, if this really is Theonostas, if this really is how God wants me to live and how you to live, maybe we should read it. Maybe we should try to live it more, right? And do a better job at it. Amen? Amen. Amen. I hope I didn't confuse you too much. Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray you help all of us, Lord, to absorb this stuff, God, and to come away confident that the books we have are the books that you breathed. The books that we have are the books that can give us life, that they really are theanostas, Lord, that they really are breathed by you. But God, help us to be able to be confident enough, Lord, and to know enough of the history to say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not true. There wasn't diverse, so many diverse views. There, there, was, there was a the faith in the first century. There, there, there were teachings by Paul and Peter that were widely accepted from the first century up until this very day. And so, God, I, I pray that with that confidence, Lord, comes a desire to study this book and to feel responsible, Lord, to, to live under its teaching and its authority. In Jesus' name, amen.